coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast, brought to you by our great friends at MyBookie. Go ahead and go to MyBookie.ag right now, guys. Sign up for a brand new account, and when you do, you know the drill. Use our promo code UGA, and you will get a 50% bonus on your first deposit. So continue to take advantage of this deal while you still can. All right, guys, I am your host, Tyler, and I do want to apologize here at the outset for this show being a day late. My wife and I were able to get away for the weekend. We had an amazing time up in the Windy City, which has kind of become like a second home for us. Love that place. I know, that's weird. Southern boy, Georgia boy, Chicago. Yeah, love it. If the University of Georgia did not exist, I would probably live there. So yeah, it was a great weekend. Always great getting back up in the Windy City. But of course, it also meant I was a little bit out of pocket this weekend. And I just got back today. It's Monday night. So here I am back from the airport. Back in Athens, so what's basically the first thing I do as soon as I get home? That's right, we dial things up, we get this mic going, and we get to work producing content for all you guys out there. So I know this is a little late, and it's certainly going to be a little bit more off the cuff today than our episodes usually are. I did have a chance to put a little bit of something together on the flight back today, so not completely flying blind here. But man, while we were gone... Had quite a few things happen in the world of Georgia Athletics. So we're going to try to get through as many of those developments as we can. And we got to start off the top. The main event, the main focus of today's podcast is going to be Brian McClendon moving on from his alma mater, taking a job in the NFL as the wide receivers coach and passing game coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Just another college football coach taking his services to the NFL. Thank you, Transfer Portal. Thank you, NIL. Thank you, NCAA. We're losing good people. And it sucks. But McClendon is out, and who's coming in? Remains to be seen. We'll get to that in a minute here. I do want to start by just giving BMAC some props here. He did a really good job for us. I'm not going to tell you that BMAC changed the game for us at receiver, because I don't think that's the case. But he came in, and stabilized that room and helped us recruit at a higher level than we previously had been prior to him coming in with Cortez Hankton. I mean, he at least had us in it for some of the best receivers in the country on a consistent basis. Now, did we land those guys? No, we didn't land the Mike Matthews of the world. We didn't land the Jeremiah Smiths of the world. We didn't land the Ryan Wingos of the world, the Luther Burdens of the world. We didn't land those guys, and, and that sucks. And I know a lot of you are kind of like good riddance, Brian McClendon, because I mean, we didn't land those guys. At the end of the day, that's your job. It's to land these guys. I don't want to hear excuses. I just want results. I want these guys. And I understand the argument that our recruiting at wide receiver never quite took off the way that we were hoping it would when he came to Athens prior to the 2022 season. But in my opinion, that is not a Brian McClendon thing. That's not a BMAC thing. And let's just go ahead and dive into this. I was going to say this for maybe after we did our, our wide receiver coach hot board. We'll get to that. But it just makes sense to go ahead and dive into this right now. Let's talk about it. Over the past, I don't even want to say six months. I want to say year, two, three years, for a long time. It's been years, guys. I have gotten a consistent question over and over again. Why can't we recruit wide receivers? Why can't we land the big fish out there? Why can't we get Jeremiah Smith? Why can't we get Luther Burden? Why can't we get Ryan Wingo, Mike Matthews? Why can't we get these guys? And I'm not going to lie, guys. It's been frustrating for me too. It's hard. I get it. I'm, I'm just like you. I sit here and I watch Alabama. I watch Tennessee. I watch LSU. Now, now we're watching Auburn go out and get these five-star wide receivers on a relatively consistent basis. I mean, it seems like Ohio State brings in about 12 five-star wide receivers every single class. I mean, is, is that not about right? In Georgia here, we can't seem to get one. The only five-star receiver that we have signed in the Kirby Smart era is George Pickens. And now eight signing classes under Kirby Smart, we have signed a grand total of one five-star wide receiver. If you look at how we are recruiting at basically every other position on the roster, it is very clear now, it is abundantly clear that our recruiting at receiver is deficient. We are simply not recruiting at the same level at wide receiver as we are at basically every other position on the team, on the roster. And again, you can point at BMAC if you want to and say, I don't care, good riddance, get out of here, we'll find somebody that can recruit better. But I don't think this is a BMAC thing. Brian McClendon has always had a reputation 
as a big-time recruiter, wherever he has been. That did not change when he came to the University of Georgia under Kirby Smart. In fact, if anything, it should have enhanced his recruiting profile when you considered the resources that we have at our disposal to go out and recruit, the amount of money that we dedicate administratively to allowing our coaches to go out and recruit. Winning back-to-back national titles, catapulting our program to the upper echelons of college football. If anything... His ability to recruit should have been enhanced coming to Georgia, coming back to Athens. But as we all know, that wasn't the case. So what's the issue here? Well, the way I look at it, the way I've always felt about this, is that for BMAC, for instance, he was working with two hands tied behind his back trying to go out and recruit the best receivers in the country. One hand, in my opinion, has long been tied by negative recruiting. Every receiver coach that we've essentially had under Kirby Smart has had to deal with this. Some have been just better recruiters and able to overcome it, at least more so than others. Like Cortez Hangton, for instance, simply just had a tough time overcoming what is clearly a handicap and a hindrance. He had a tougher time overcoming it than a guy like James Coley and a guy like Brian McClendon. But negative recruiting is absolutely undeniably something that we face when it comes to recruiting receivers. It is a major hindrance for us. And and let's think about this, guys. We have had one receiver in the history of the Georgia football program. 120 years. The 120-year history of the Georgia football program, we have had a grand total of one single player go over a thousand yards receiving in a season that was Terrence Edwards and by God he barely went over a thousand in 2002 I think it was like a thousand two yards receiving we've had one player do it guys one player in the history of our program well why does that matter because if you look around the country at the other top teams in America who are also vying for the top receivers in the country well, they have produced a lot more than just one single 1,000-yard receiver in their program's history. In fact, in just the last three, four, five years, they've all produced multiple 1,000-yard receivers. Go to Ohio State, right? They keep getting five-star to five-star to five-star. Well, in the last three seasons, they've produced 5,000-yard receivers. LSU has produced three in the last two seasons. They had two this past year with Malik Neighbors and Brian Thomas. Alabama, I know, the past two years haven't had that guy at receiver. But if you go from about 2018 to 2021, about a four-year span there, they had six guys go over a 1,000 yards. One of them, Devontae Smith in 2020, won the freaking Heisman Trophy. And look, guys, I know that we all love the University of Georgia with every fiber in our being. We bleed red and black. That's who we are. That's what we are. That's what we do. We look at it, though, in a very different way than these high-level recruits do especially at the wide receiver position. You guys know the the cliche of the diva wide receiver. In a lot of ways, it's kind of true, right? These guys that are five-star prospects, the Jeremiah Smiths of the world, the Mike Matthews of the world, the Ryan Wingo's of the world, Luther Burns, I know I keep saying the same guys over and over again because those are the most recent recruits that we've been after the receiver position, the five-star guys that we just haven't landed. All of those guys, there's one thing they have on their mind. It's getting to the NFL. Well, I shouldn't say one thing. That's one of the two things. We'll get to the second thing here in a second. But this is a business decision for them. For us, like if we were being recruited out of high school, I guess maybe in this day and age, maybe it kind of would be. I don't know. But I just know I love the University of Georgia, and I don't care. I was gonna, I would go on to Georgia. Like that was just gonna happen, right? That's what I would have done. And I think it's probably what most of you have done because that's who we are. Well, these kids that we're recruiting, even some of the in-state kids like Mike Matthews. They don't look at it like that. This is a long-term business decision. We're talking about long-term generational type decision, generational wealth, the opportunity to build that for their family's mood in the future. That's the way they look at this. So they're going to ask you really two questions. Can you put me in the league and can you pay me? That's the two things they're looking for. They want to get paid now with NIL, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's that's the world we live in. That's what happens, and you can command that. When you are an elite five-star receiver, you can command that kind of money because someone's going to give it to you. Ohio State's going to give it to you. LSU's going to give it to you. Somebody is going to be willing to pony up because they put more of a premium on that position. So they're asked those two questions. That's what it comes down to. Can you put me in the league? Can you showcase my skill set enough 
to make me a high-profile enough player heading into the NFL draft that I can reasonably expect to be a first-round draft pick. Because that's that's the way they look at it, guys. These five-star players, in their minds, coming out of high school, it's just three years, I'm going to be a first-round NFL draft pick. That's what they expect. That's their expectation for themselves. So their question for us is, can you do that for me? And can we say with a straight face that we can? When is the last receiver that we put in the first round of the NFL draft, guys? Anyone want to take a guess? Yeah, A.J. Green. Nailed it, right? 2011. Guys, that's 13 years ago. 13 freaking years ago was the last time that we had a wide receiver get drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. Half the guys that we are recruiting right now at the receiver position, these five-star guys, they couldn't even tie their shoes the last time that we had a receiver go in the first round of the NFL draft. There's no proof of concept. We can tell them all we want. Hey, yeah, you know, you're, you're the missing piece. You're the guy that we've been looking for. We haven't been able to put up a thousand yards for a single receiver because we just haven't had that guy. We've been waiting for the guy. You're that guy. But that falls on deaf ears. Why would they listen to that? Even if we're talking about professional salesmen, which is what these coaches are when it comes to recruiting, when they have proof of concept at Alabama, multiple proofs of concept at Bama, at LSU, at Ohio State at Florida State, at USC, at Oklahoma, at Texas. It would represent a massive business risk for them to just say, you know what? Georgia's winning at a really high level right now. I want to be part of a winning culture and I want to win national championships. I want to be coached hard. I want to be a part of that program, the way that they do things. You might, all that might be true. You might want to be a part of the Georgia program and be part of that winning culture and play for Kirby Smart. You might love Kirby Smart, but at the end of the day, it's a massive business risk for these guys. And they are constantly reminded of that by all the other professional salesmen on all these other college staffs around the country. And oh yeah, by the way, they're 17 and 18 years old. Trying to make a decision of that degree with all of these voices, all of these again professional salesmen in their ear trying to convince them that yeah, that might all sound good and all, but it's not in your best interest financially long-term. And even beyond the finances, they just want to be the guy. Again, let's go back to Diva Wide Receiver. I know they're not all like that, but a lot of them are. They want to be the guy. What do the receivers want? They want the freaking ball. Well, at Georgia, you're just simply not going to get the ball the way you're going to at Ohio State, the way that you're going to at Alabama, at LSU, at Texas, at Oklahoma. You're just not because our offense is not built that way. Could we change our offense to better suit receivers and better accommodate them and feed them the football? Yeah, of course we could. But the way Kirby Smart's looking at it is, why in the hell would I do that? Look how much success we've had doing this. Why would I change it? I mean, guys, we were a, a couple of injuries and a horrifically terrible blown call in the SEC Championship game away from potentially putting together a three-peat, an unprecedented three-peat. So if you're Kirby Smart, what I'm doing's working, man. Why would I change it? And therein lies the conundrum right? So they don't have the proof of concept that we can get them to the NFL and get the huge, gigantic, like generational wealth type payday. We don't have the proof of concept that we can do that for these guys. We just simply don't. Well, the other end, how can you overcome that, right? Well, NIL now in this day and age gives you an opportunity to overcome some of that negative recruiting. So you know what? Well, you know, we might not have the proof of concept that we can feature your skill set and you can put up massive numbers here. And we might not have the proof of concept that we can put you in the first round as a receiver in the NFL draft. But you know what we can do? We can pay you right now. We can pay you big bucks with NIL. That's one way to overcome it. Now, a lot of receivers are still going to, they're going to wait out. So you know what? No, like I, I get it. Like you can pay me right now, but there's a bigger payday down the road. And I'm not sure that you're going to situate me to cash in on that big payday, but you can at least neutralize that negative recruiting to a degree if you're willing to pay to neutralize it with NIL. Well, the reality of the situation is, guys, we are not willing to do that, at least not to this point. Kirby Smart has an NIL structure in place in terms of what position he puts a premium on and how he's going to allocate money, NIL money, to recruiting certain positions. It's a lot It's a lot like running back in the NFL these days. So that position's just been devalued and those guys just have a hard time getting the long-term contracts and their contracts are not as, as high-priced for a number of reasons because the shelf life of an NFL running back isn't as long as other positions. And also, the running backs seem to be more or less plug-and-play more so than other positions. So why waste valuable capital on that position when there are other far more important positions that have more of an outsized impact on your ability to win games? 
Kirby Smart has essentially taken that same philosophy and he's just applied it to a different position. No, we don't have the NFL salary cap, but you have a finite amount of NIL resources to spend. So in effect, it is somewhat of a salary cap. It's a self-imposed salary cap based on the NIL funds that you have at your disposal, but we don't have limitless funds in our NIL, right? The Class City Collective doesn't have limitless funds. There's a lot of funding, but we don't have limitless funds. We have 85 scholarship players, guys, and most of them need to get something. So part of the head coach's job now has become more or less GM. And yeah, 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 I know, I know. The coaching staffs, the team, the athletic department, they're not supposed to have any direct connection to the collectives and the NIL funding. I, I know all that, but guys, we also live in reality. Like We know what happens. But the simple calculus for our program, for Kirby Smart, has been that that position doesn't impact winning for us the way that other positions do. We simply put more of a premium on other positions. In particular, the lines of scrimmage, offensive and defensive lines. We are willing to pony up and pay for those positions because that's how our offense and how our entire team, our defense, our offense is built. We'll pony up more for defensive backs, elite defensive backs, because Kirby Smart understands the value associated with having defensive backs that can actually cover these elite receivers other teams have. In recent years, we've put more of a premium on tight end. In tight end, we also have more proof of concept in terms of putting guys in the NFL and featuring these guys in our offense. I mean, we just produced maybe the greatest tight end in college football history, the only two-time Mackey Award winner ever in college football history. So there's more proof of concept there. And with our offensive system and our identity offensively, and really our overall team identity, tight ends are far more important to that than receivers have been in Kirby Smart's mind. And I think largely in my mind, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. It creates matchup issues, allows us to run the football. If they got to get heavy to defend the run, then we have matchups all in the passing game with Bowers, with Darnell Washington, with Oscar Delp. That has been very, very successful for us. Back-to-back national titles with a tight end being our number one offensive weapon. And now that we have this tight end pipeline seemingly, why would you give that up when it's been so successful for you and it fits the identity of your team, of your program that you have cultivated. And that's another part of this, guys. There's give and take here. If we recruit tight ends the way that we recruit tight ends and feature tight ends the way that we feature tight ends, well, we're not going to be able to recruit receivers the way that we would like to recruit receivers because teams, other teams out there are going to point to our tight ends. And while we think it's a great asset and it has been for us, they're going to say that offense is built around tight ends. Look at Brock Bowers. They feed him. They're not going to feed you. They had A.D. Mitchell. They didn't feed A.D. Mitchell. They had Lab McConkie. They didn't really feed Lab McConkie. They had George Pickens, who's starting in the NFL right now for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that guy didn't even get a thousand yards. They didn't even feature that guy. They feature tight ends. So why would you go there? So there's give and take. We might not recruit receivers, the way that we want to because we don't have proof of concept, but it allows us to be able to recruit tight ends. It's tough to have the best of both worlds. Like, does Ohio State recruit tight ends the way that we do? No, they don't. They recruit receivers way better than us, but they don't recruit tight ends the way that we do. Do they recruit inside linebackers the way that we do? No, they don't. Do they recruit offensive linemen the way that we do? No, they don't. That's because they have different philosophies. They're built differently. But anyway, to bring this back and, and bring it full circle, tie up the loose ends, that's why I don't put this on BMAC. I think BMAC did a good job for us as well as could be expected considering the context of the situation that he walked into. I know he didn't land those top guys, but I mean, m- multiple five-star receivers. I know there, there's no moral victory in being the runner-up. I get that, being the bridesmaid. I, I understand that. But I think it, it's a testament to how good of a recruiter Brian McClendon is considering everything that I just laid out for you and why we have issues recruiting wide receivers so consistently under Kirby Smart, I think it's a testament to how good of a job he did and how hard this guy worked that we were not just in it for some of these guys, but finished like number two for quite a few. Like Luther Burden guys, we essentially had until the last second. We were in it for Ryan Wingo for a long time. We were in it for Mike Matthews for a long time. No, we didn't close the door, but getting as close as we did considering the constraints in which our receiving coaches have to operate recruiting wide receivers, I think Brian McClendon did a pretty damn good job, guys. I also think he did a good job developing our talent. That's another part of the position. Yes, recruiting is the massive part of being a college football coach. Of course, you can't discount that. But actually developing your players once you get them on campus, that's a big part of it too. In Lad McConkie, I know Lad was great in 2021. Lad was even better in 2022. Brian McClendon had a lot to do with that. 
Marcus Rosemary Jackson, the last two seasons, really blossomed, especially this year, really blossomed. And I think Brian McClendon deserves a lot of credit for that. Ra Ra Thomas coming over from an air raid system, which, guys, I cannot even begin to describe to you how foreign our offensive system is to a guy coming from the air raid. It's, it's, it's football. I guess that's about the only similarity. Other than that, there's not many similarities. And to get him up to speed and get him to where he was producing at a high level for us before he went down with injury, that's a hell of a job. He did a really good job. Dylan Bell. Let's look at Dylan Bell. Dylan Bell, yeah, he played receiver last or in 2022 for us. But last year, I mean, how much time did that guy spend in the receiver room? At least the first half of the year? Not that much. And look at how he developed as the season went on at that position. And McClendon didn't even have him full time. So yeah, I think he did a really good job of coaching our players and developing that talent. But the recruiting is what it is because of the constraints that come with coaching that position and recruiting that position at the University of Georgia under Kirby Smart. All right, so there's my two cents on that. I know I've got a lot of questions on that over the, I don't know, again, years. So I wanted to address that directly head on here. And when we come back from the break, I appreciate your patience. And when we get back from this break, I will reveal our wide receiver coach hot board. But first, let me remind you guys about our great friends at my bookie guys. March is literally just around the corner. I know some of you are frustrated. A lot of you, if you're like me, are frustrated with Georgia basketball, but college basketball has taken center stage in March Madness is literally a week and a half away, guys. It's about to be March, which means you need to go ahead and get on the action now. Don't wait until the NCAA tournament. You want to build that bankroll up some so when the tournament does get here, you have more money to play with. So go ahead, go to mybookie.ag, sign up for a brand new account, and use our promo code UGA when you do so, and you're going to get a 50% bonus on your first deposit. Take advantage of it, guys. Come on. Build that bankroll. Make some big money. So you can head into college football season with a nice fat bankroll, and you can really, really make some big cash. But again, that's mybookie.ag, promo code UGA, and bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with mybookie. All right, guys, wide receiver coach hot board. And honestly, I don't even know if this is really a hot board. I don't have any inside information on this. So it feels somewhat disingenuous calling it a hot board. How about wide receiver coach names to watch? Can we call it that? I think that's fair, right? And I'm going to start at the top here with a group of guys that have some sort of connection to either Kirby Smart or other coaches on our staff, in particular, offensive coordinator Mike Bobo. And I want to start with these guys because if you look at Kirby's hiring practices, more often than not, he likes to hire guys that either he knows, so he knows I trust this guy, or someone that he trusts knows and trusts that person. That's not always been the case. He's brought in guys from the outside. Fran Brown is an example of that. Trey Scott, once upon a time, was an example of that. Jadir Uze-Duribe is another example of that. Those guys didn't really have direct connection to Kirby Smart prior to getting a job here in Athens. But a lot of the guys have. Mike Bobo, obviously. Will Muschamp. Todd Hartley. Stacey Searles. So that's why I want to start with these guys that I think might have some sort of connection to people within our program, if not Kirby Smart himself. Again, that doesn't mean that these guys are definitely going to get the job, and it has to be somebody that has some sort of connection because we have higher guys that don't have direct connections. But I think it makes sense to start with some of these names. I'm going to start with a guy that probably has more connections to our staff than really anybody on this list, and that's got to be former Georgia quarterback Joe Cox. Let's start there, guys. I don't know how much you follow Joe Cox's coaching career, but he has coached extensively with Mike Bobo. Back in 2016 through 2019 at Colorado State, he was a tight end coach under Mike Bobo. Yes, we all know Bobo, obviously, our current offensive coordinator. He was then also the wide receiver coach. So he has actually coached wide receivers only for one season, but he has coached wide receivers at South Carolina in 2020, the COVID year, under, yes, again, Mike Bobo and also Will Muschamp, who was the head coach, then got fired halfway through the year, and yeah, that whole deal. But he was at South Carolina with that coaching staff, again, coaching wide receivers at least for that one year. Then he went to Alabama, spent two years at Alabama as the tight end coach, and most recently has been hired by Ole Miss as their tight end coach. So he has some fairly good experience in the SEC over the past five or six years. And again, has those connections, not just to Mike Bobo as a coach, also going back to Mike Bobo, Mike Bobo as, as his offensive coordinator, as his quarterback coach back in the day. And you would have to think that Mike Bobo is going to have 
some pretty considerable input into this hire. Kirby obviously will have final say, but he is going to loop Bobo into this. And that, that's what you do. That, that Because the receiver coach is, yes, he's working for Kirby Smart, but more directly, he's working for the offensive coordinator, working under the offensive coordinator who is himself working under the head coach. And given Bobo's history with Joe Cox and the fact that he just recently took a job at Ole Miss, it's not like he's been there. He's been there, what, for a couple of weeks or so? Joe Cox makes a lot of sense. He makes a lot of sense, guys, especially, obviously, his alma mater coming back to Athens might potentially be attracted to him. So that's why I've got him at the top. I'm not saying he's going to be the guy. Again, I'm not, I do not have any inside information on this. I don't want to make anyone think that I'm telling you that I've, I've heard Joe Cox is the guy. That's not at all the case. I'm just reading between the lines here, thinking about some names of guys who might have some ties to our program, who've coached receiver or could be candidates to potentially coach receivers for us. And Joe Cox is a guy that makes a lot of sense. Now, there's another guy on staff right now who I also think could maybe slide into this position. He has been a quality control guy. He's been an analyst for us behind the scenes, at least last year he was. And that's Brandon Streeter. He was the former offense coordinator at Clemson. Well, he spent one year as offense coordinator at Clemson. He was a long time like co-OC, uh, quarterback coach, Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, all those guys at Clemson. He got fired after the 2022 season when things didn't go so well for the Clemson offense. And he came over here as an analyst. And he's been a valuable piece for us in that support staff role. He could potentially be a name to watch there. Now, he doesn't have any experience coaching wide receivers, so I don't know how much of a premium Kirby is going to put on that, but these guys, especially if you've been an offensive coordinator, then you know the positions on offense. Like You could go function as a wide receiver coach. And Streeter also has the built-in advantage of being with our program most recently. Knowing how things work, it would be probably the most seamless move just promoting Brandon Streeter. Now, again, I'd have no idea if that's going to happen, no inside word, but that's just a name that, you know, when I thought about, okay, who might be a name to watch here? Brandon Streeter is a guy. It's like, okay, this guy is a highly qualified coach, been an offense coordinator at the Power Five level at Clemson, and now he's working for us as an analyst. He could easily be an option to just slide into that position. So he's the name to watch there. Now, here is a crazy name that I don't even know if it really... I don't know. It, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. It's one of those things. What about James Coley? What about James Coley, guys? I know it did not end well in 2019. I know it did not end well. I know it was a horrific experience with him as our offensive coordinator, and our offense just did a face dive, complete face plant under James Coley in 2019. I understand that. But we're not asking him to go call plays. We're asking him to coach, and more importantly, recruit wide receivers. And that man is the best recruiter at the wide receiver position that we have had under Kirby Smart. Perhaps maybe since I've been a Georgia fan, like I can think of the top of my head in terms of like recruiting guys. I mean, he is a South Florida recruiting ace. And uh, yeah, you think they have a few uh, big-time receivers coming out of South Florida? Yep, they do. He was a big part of landing George Pickens. He was actually a big part of putting that 2020 recruiting class together. And I know he left after 2019, but his connections in South Florida really helped us in that class. Getting a guy like Marcus Rosemey Jackson also. I know Jermaine Burton was not in South Florida, but getting a guy like Jermaine Burton. I mean, guys, that 2020 recruiting class, I know that we didn't have five-star receivers, but we had like three top 100 players. Aaron Smith was another one. And James Coley played a big role in putting that together. So like really the five highest rated receivers that we've had, uh, ever landed under Kirby Smart, say George Pickens, Dominic Blaylock, then you look at the 2020 class, even though by the time the 2020 class was actually signed, he was out the door. But putting that together and getting those guys in the fold, James Coley is probably more responsible for those players than any other coach anywhere right now. So that guy can recruit. And he can recruit an incredibly fertile, hotbed of talent in South Florida. He has tons of connections down there. And him and Kirby, here's what I don't know. I don't know like when we parted ways with Coley. Was that on good terms? I don't know. Here's what I can tell you. I know prior to that, him and Kirby were tight. And if you think back to how it was handled, Kirby, it was very quiet, his dismissal. It really was. It wasn't like this big thing. It was, it was about as quiet as you could handle a dismissal from a program of our caliber that I could think of. So I don't know if there's any bad blood there. Oftentimes, 
time helps heal those wounds, as we know. And so maybe we kind of put, if there was bad blood, something that's been put behind people, and he might be willing to jump at this opportunity. Obviously, he was at Texas A&M. He was not retained, not at Texas A&M anymore. He's now at South Carolina under Shane Beamer. He has connection with Beamer. Obviously, they were both on Kirby's first staff here in Athens. But hey, I mean, you think he's not going to come to Georgia if we offer him that receiver's job? I, I think absolutely he would come running back to Georgia. You'd have to think, unless, again, there's like bad blood between him and Kirby, but I, I don't have no reason to believe that there is because I think Kirby handled that really well. And he also defended him in some strong terms at times back in 2019, some of those press conferences. I remember in particular, this still stands out to me. It was the post-game press conference after the Florida game. Remember we had that, that play to Lawrence Cagers. It was an awesome play. It was really well dialed up by James Coley. And Kirby made a point to mention James Coley's name in calling plays like that it was a very defiant way because he he had heard obviously all the criticism of James Coley all year long in 2019, and he made a very defiant point to say that's James Coley. You know he calls plays like that too. So just put that one in your back pocket. I don't know if I would call him a, a front runner by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it kind of could make some sense, even though it might seem kind of counterintuitive. I think that could possibly make some sense there. All right, a couple other names here. Now these are some off the radar names that don't have necessarily direct connections to actually coaching with Kirby Smart or Mike Bobo or anyone else in, within our staff, but they have some maybe secondary connections to guys in our staff, into Kirby Smart himself. And it's Josh Crawford and Jimmy Smith. I'm lumping them together because these are two former Georgia high school coaches. And that is where the connection is with Kirby Smart and some of the guys on our staff because Kirby Smart makes it a point to build relationships with the high school coaches in the state of Georgia. His dad was a high school coach in the state of Georgia. It is important to Kirby Smart, not just for our recruiting purposes, obviously for that, but also just for the high school talent in the state of Georgia. He likes to bring these guys in. The coaching clinics are, I've been to the coaching clinics guys and they do a hell of a job. He it's important. He puts an emphasis on helping develop these coaches. That's important. He, he sees that as part of his role and also building relationships with them. So Josh Crawford is a guy who is a receivers coach at Georgia Tech. All right. Now he was a high school coach. Um, he was a, he was an assistant coach at a couple of different places. He was at Valdosta. He was at Colquitt. He was at Lee County. Uh, I think he was at Jefferson for a little while. GAC, Great Atlantic Christian. He was there for a little while. So he spent a lot of time and not just some high school programs in the state of Georgia, but some big time high school programs in the state of Georgia. And yeah, he's at Georgia Tech right now, but he is coaching under well, two guys that Kirby knows. Obviously, he knows Brent Key from his days back at Alabama. And even more so, more recently, he knows Buster Faulkner, who's the offensive coordinator at Georgia Tech. So there's certainly some crossover there. I, again, I don't know if he's he is a front runner for the position or anything. I can't tell you that. But he is a name that has certainly been rumored to be at least... A name to watch over the next couple of weeks as we try to figure out who is going to fill that vacancy left behind by Brian McClendon. So definitely watch out for that name, Josh Crawford. And the other guy, Jimmy Smith. I think Jimmy Smith personally would make more sense. I think there's more of a connection here. So Jimmy Smith was, um, he, he coached at Cedar Grove for a long time. And Cedar Grove is a pretty big time high school in the state of Georgia. We've recruited a number of players from that high school. And he was the head coach there for a while. So definitely Kirby Smart has a relationship with him dating back to his time at Cedar Grove as a high school coach here in the state of Georgia. He is right now currently at Arkansas, where he is not just the running backs coach, he's also associate head coach. Now let's think about this for a minute, okay? How did he end up at Arkansas, right? High school coach, state of Georgia, Cedar Grove. How does he end up in Fayetteville, Arkansas? Well, Sam Pittman, the head coach at Arkansas, where did he spend a lot of time before he got that job at Arkansas? Oh yeah, that's right. Athens, University of Georgia. And during his time here in Athens as our offensive line coach, where he did a hell of a job, he built a lot of relationships. He was a hell of a recruiter. And one of those relationships was absolutely Jimmy Smith at Cedar Grove. So if Sam Pittman had a good enough relationship with this guy from his time coaching at Georgia, while Jimmy Smith was a high school coach in the state of Georgia, you have to believe that Kirby Smart I don't want to say has the exact same relationship, but also has a relationship of sorts with Jimmy Smith and probably has a lot of respect for Jimmy Smith. I would imagine that Sam Pippen probably even talked to Kirby Smart a little bit about Jimmy Smith. Potentially, I don't know that for a fact. I'm just spitballing here, just guessing. It makes sense. It's possible. So that's another name. That's another name 
just to put in your back pocket. I don't think he's the fronter right now, but it also wouldn't shock me if he ends up getting the job, him or Josh Crawford. I think there's some secondary connections there. I think that they have now gotten some Power 5 experience. And if you're looking for guys that can recruit, because that's a big part of the job, right? High school coaches, former high school coaches really fit that bill. Think about Del McGee. That's what Del McGee was. He was the head coach at Carver. And then we bring him up to Athens. He gets the head coaching job. And one of the best things that he has brought us, he's, he's a hell of a coach. He's done a really good job coaching that position, administratively supporting Kirby Smart. But he's been a really good recruiter. Now, have we kind of dropped off with our running back recruiting to a degree over the past couple of years? Yeah, somewhat. But he's also landed a number of big-time five-star prospects for us. And both Jimmy Smith and Josh Crawford could fit that bill. So just don't forget about their names. Now, the last two names here... I've saved them for last because I know that these are the names that get hyped the most because they have direct connections to the University of Georgia because we all love them because they contributed. They played for the University of Georgia. And of course, that's Heinz Ward and Terrence Edwards. Now, Heinz Ward has, for whatever reason, for a long time, basically since he retired from the NFL, he's been a fan favorite to be our receivers coach. Like, a lot of fans have basically been of the opinion, like, let's just boo whoever we've got and put Heinz Ward in there. Because, I mean, hey, like, Super Bowl MVP, is an NFL Hall of Famer, he's a Georgia alum, like, one of the all-time greats at Georgia. Like, it's a no-brainer. He would just be the best receiver coach in the history of receiver coaches. So let, let's make this happen. There are fans who feel that way about Heinz Ward. Now, I always kind of laughed at it. I'm not going to lie. The first couple years you heard about this, because Heinz Ward wasn't even coaching football. Uh, he wasn't even coaching football. So it was, it was always kind of comical to me to think that, okay, this guy's going to go from, okay, he was coaching in the NFL, or he was playing in the NFL, winning Super Bowls, Super Bowl MVPs, and his first coaching job is going to be an on-field coaching job at the University of Georgia. Like that, that's, Georgia's not a place where you're learning on the job, in my opinion. So I always found that somewhat comical. But it's not so comical anymore because Heinz Ward has gone out and gotten himself some real legitimate experience as a football coach. He was an offensive assistant for the New York Jets back in 2019 and 2020. Then he was an actual wide receivers coach at Florida Atlantic in 2021. No, it's not power five, but he does now have at least a year of college coaching experience where he's done some recruiting. He's actually dealt with players that age and worked in the context of the NCAA and all of that. He's done that. So I know it's not extensive experience, but he's got some now. And then most recently, he was the head coach of the San Antonio XFL team. I think they were the Brahmas, like the Rock, Brahma Bull, right? That was last year. And my understanding is he did not get extended. I think he got fired, basically. I know there's a merger now with the XFL and the USFL, but he's not going to be coaching them anymore. But he does have actual coaching experience, NFL coaching experience, college coaching experience, coaching wide receivers, and I, I, I don't even know like what you call this XFL experience, but it's coaching experience. So now I don't think it's quite as funny. Now I think it's far more realistic. And he has made no bones about it, guys. He has been very open saying, yeah, I would love to coach at Georgia. That'd be awesome. Like he's not hidden his desire to make that happen. He also so happens to be a former teammate of Kirby Smart. So talk about connections. Yeah, there are connections there. The question I would have is, is Heinz Ward, if indeed Kirby Smart is interested in kicking the tires on maybe bringing Heinz Ward aboard, is Heinz Ward really ready for the Kirby Smart experience. Is he really ready for that? Because it's different, man. It's different. Like we, we see all these college coaches now heading to the NFL, right? Well, Heinz Ward, are you, you ready to not just jump into the college football as an assistant coach in the current climate of college football with NIL and transfer portal, but also under the demands that Kirby Smart will place on you? I don't care if you're a former teammate. Kirby doesn't care about that, right? In terms of like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, treat you just like I treat everybody else here. Like I have demands and you better meet them. Kirby is a demanding coach. Now from everything I I understand, coaches love coaching for him because Kirby is fair, but he also has high expectations and he has demands and you better meet them. So is Heinz ready for that? Is he ready to walk into that? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Only he knows the answer to that. But I think now he is at least worth mentioning as a realistic candidate. And I would not laugh if he was hired. In fact, well, 10 years ago, or however many years ago, I wouldn't have laughed. I've been probably like, okay, I would have been mystified. Like, I love Heinz, and I get it. Like, you know, sure, NFL resume speaks for itself. You, you think you can coach position, and like, 
command the attention of players and get in their living rooms, all that, sure, but it's no experience. I don't know. You just got to, I need to see it. But now he does have some experience, so I wouldn't hate it. I don't know if he would be my number one candidate because of, of the general lack of experience, but I don't think it would be a terrible hire at this point. In fact, it, it has the potential to be a home run hire. It has that potential, but it also has the, more of a potential to fizzle out than more than any of the other guys. So it's like Joe Cox, James Coley, Brandon Streeter. These are like college ball coaching lifers. That's what they do. Crawford, Smith, they're coaching lifers. They were at the high school level, now at the college level. Heinz Ward, yeah, he's a football lifer, but not necessarily a coaching lifer. So you just there's a lot more variance when it comes to how it could play it with Ward. I think, again, there's a higher ceiling with him, potentially, if, it, if, if it's a home run, but there's also that potential that could just really, really not work out more. So I think any of these other names out there. And then finally, the the last name here, another guy with connections to Georgia, played at Georgia, the only 1,000-yard receiver in Georgia football history, Terrence Edwards, who's done a lot of wide receiver training in recent years, had his own program. A lot of receivers, big-time receivers had come through there, trained a lot of these guys, worked with a lot of these guys, uh, worked with Milton High School last year. And now he's got an opportunity to be the head coach at the Mount Vernon School. So he's not only been training guys, he's actually been coaching. And he also coached at Pace Academy for a while. So he has legit coaching experience and he's trained a lot of these guys. Like he's worked with athletes this age. He can connect with them. He can recruit them. He is a Georgia legend. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think Terrence Edwards, if he was interested, would be a really good hire. I just don't know if that's the direction Kirby Smart would go in right now when it comes to Edwards or Heinz Ward. I think Kirby is probably looking for more college experience, doing the things that college coaches have to do, working in the fire of like a power five college program. That would be my expectation. So I think those are names to watch. They certainly bear mentioning. They're worth mentioning. But I just don't think that Heinz Ward or Terrence Edwards are going to be the guy at the end of the day. I, I, I could be very wrong here. And I'm open to being wrong. I don't think they would be bad hires. I just don't think that they are at the top of the list. I think you're going to see like... I would put James Coley, Joe Cox, Brandon Streeter, I'd put those guys probably at the top of my list. And then Crawford, Smith mentioned them as well. And look, there might be somebody that we haven't even heard mention in connection with the job yet. It's still very, very early on. We're a couple days into this. But there you go. That is a quick, I guess, somewhat coaching hot board for our wide receiver coaching position. Obviously, that's a very preliminary list, and we'll be watching things very closely over the next couple of days, week or two, as we get deeper into this coaching search. But we are not done yet, guys. When we get back from this last break, we're going to move beyond the Georgia football world, and we're going to take a look at some spring sports who've gotten off to a great start this season. I want to give them some love, and we will do that. But first, I want to remind you guys about our great friends at Alumni Hall. We're about to talk some Georgia baseball, guys. We did it last week. We're about to do it again in just a few minutes. But if you are planning on making it out to Foley Field at some point this season to take in what looks like it's going to be a really, really good Georgia baseball team, at least if the first weekend is any indication, you got to get geared up, guys. And I'm telling you, there's nowhere that you're going to find a better selection of Georgia baseball gear than Alumni Hall. They've got a ton of options, guys. You got they have the traditional t-shirts, got the long sleeve shirts, got the polos, you got the, the hoodies, all that. Sure, all that stuff's great. Crew necks, but they have also got the best selection of Georgia baseball jerseys that I have seen anywhere. They got it in all different colors, red, black, gray, white. They've got it, guys. So stop in today. You gotta look the part, man, right? There's nothing like looking the part. You get, it makes you feel good. You walk in there, you're rocking that G. And Alumni Hall is gonna get you suited up. So stop in today inside the Etchbridge Shopping Center here in the Classic City or online at alumnihall.com because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, guys. Speaking of Georgia baseball, what an opening weekend. Let's freaking go. The Diamond Dogs swept UNC Asheville to open the season, and they outscored Asheville by a combined score of 38-7 to over the course of that three-game set. Now, some of you, the naysayers among you, might say, well, I mean, yeah, Tyler, it's, it's UNC Asheville. Call me when we actually play anybody with a pulse. And I can respect that, but I would counter by very respectfully saying, 
We have not been doing that, beating teams and dominating teams, both offensively, defensively, and from a pitching standpoint, the way that we dominated UNC Asheville in a minute. I mean, last season, we lost the, the, the season opener, the home opener. I was there. I was freezing my butt up, but I was there. We lost that game to Jacksonville State. Now, we ended up winning that series. We won games two and three, but we lost a game in Jacksonville State. We lost a game 8-5. And yeah, we came back and won 10-3, 10-5, but in no way did we dominate that series the way that we just dominated the UNC Asheville series. You go back to 2022, and that's the year that we did make it to the postseason. Now, we didn't host, but we made it to the Chapel Hill Regional. And yeah, we swept Albany to open that season, but we beat them 4-2-7-6-9-1. We outscored them by a combined 20-9 back in 2021, opening the season. We lost the home opener again, 3-2 to Evansville. Yeah, we came back to take the last three of the four games set, but we only won those games 7-3-6-5-4-1. Again, we did not dominate th- that team the way that we just dominated UNC Asheville in really every facet of the game. So that's what has me encouraged. I know it's not an SEC team. I know there's a long way to go and we cannot get too far ahead of ourselves, but it's also okay to get excited about what we saw this weekend because we saw a lot of things this weekend that I think are going to translate moving forward that are going to give us an opportunity to get back to the postseason. Who knows? Maybe even host a regional again. I got that, that might be a little too far ahead of ourselves right now. I still need to see more against better competition. I will allow that, but I'm very excited and very encouraged by what I saw this weekend. Primarily, more than anything, yes, the bats were awesome. We were we were good offensively last year, and I wasn't exactly sure what to expect this season. We did our baseball preview last week. You guys know if you listen to that episode. If not, go back and check that out. I think it, it still works if you haven't listened to it yet. Uh, but I didn't know what to expect because we had so many newcomers, 27 newcomers, 17 transfers, 10 incoming freshmen. And we were losing guys like Connor Tay. You're losing a guy like Parks Harbor at third base. Those were two of our three best hitters. And obviously, we're returning our best hitter, who might be the best player in the country, one of the best players in the country, a true Golden Spikes Award candidate in, in Charlie Condon. But the other top three hitters on our team are gone. And it's like, okay, well... How are we going to replace these guys? And you know, you see the names. You you look at their their stats from last year, and you say, okay, like these guys look like they, like they can hit. They have that reputation. That's why we brought these guys in. But you don't know. You don't know. Well, I think we started to find out over the weekend. And I, I mean, our one-two punch is really interesting. You look at our lineup. We do not have a traditional leadoff hitter in that leadoff spot. Slate Alford, who is an infielder, a kind of utility infielder. I think he's going to end up primarily playing third base for us, but he actually ended up, he started the first game at second base, which I had heard that he could move around and play some different positions on the infield, but he played the, the last two games. He started the last two games at third base, which I think is ultimately where he's going to end up landing. But we have him hitting in the leadoff spot. And he's a very different type player, very different hitter than what we had the past couple of years with Ben Anderson. Now, ben Anderson was a guy that, as a leadoff hitter, had some pretty deceptive power, had some good power. Yeah, he could he could take you yard, but he was also the traditional, like, let's get on base, speed kind of guy, can run the bases, just that kind of traditional speed outfielder leadoff guy, right? Well, Slade Alford's very, very different. He's 6'3", pushing 240, y'all. He is a big guy. And the man has some power as he put on full display this weekend. He was just straight up crushing the ball, guys. So for the weekend, Slate Alford hit 429. He had 14 at-bats, six hits in those 14 at-bats, three home runs, nine RBIs in a three-game set. And I love having him in that spot for this reason. We have Charlie Condon batting in the two-hole. Charlie Condon might very well end up being the best hitter in college baseball this year. I think he's going to be on the shortlist. We'll see how it transpires, but he's certainly on the radar. Set an SEC freshman record for home runs last year. The guy's a freaking stud. Well, what are teams going to want to do with Charlie Condon? Well, they're going to want to pitch around Charlie Condon, right? Well, that becomes a little bit more difficult when you have the lineup that we have right now. If you can if you stick Charlie Condon in the two hole, you can put either Logan Jordan or it looks like Dylan Goldstein behind him. Those are the guys that were alternating at DH for us and they both had a really good weekend. So Goldstein, if you look at his numbers from the weekend, he went he, he hit 500 for the weekend. He was 4 of 8, 
two home runs, eight RBIs himself. And then uh, Logan Jordan also hit 500 and did not have as many at-bats. He uh, was three of six on the weekend, but also had two home runs and uh, had four RBIs himself. So if you put those two guys behind Charlie Condon, all of a sudden with their power and their ability to knock in runs, you really, really, really do not want to necessarily pitch around Charlie Condon. I mean, you don't want to pitch to Charlie Condon because he's Charlie freaking Condon. But can you really afford to pitch around him? I guess you got to pick your poison there. So if you can sandwich Condon between guys like Alford and Jordan or Alford and Goldstein who have the power that they have, that is a hellacious three, one, two, three punch at the top of your lineup. And in any given day, it could be a one, two, three, four punch. Just if you look at what we did on Saturday, we had Alford, Condon, then Goldstein, and then three hole, and Jordan was hitting cleanup. And then on Sunday, we actually had Corey Collins, who has been on our team for a couple of years. He's one of the returners. Didn't get his first start until Sunday. I mean, I don't know how many at-bats Corey Collins is going to get. Now, he, he played well when he played on Sunday, but I mean, I don't know, man. I don't know how many at-bats he's going to get. We just have a lot of options in this lineup. In fact, it's one of those good problems to have. Like There are a lot of really good players that are just not going to get many as many at-bats as they probably merit getting because we just got a number of guys that can straight up play. And this lineup is still very much in flux. We gave a lot of guys opportunities. We started a lot of a lot of different players, a lot of different positions. I mean, you look at a guy like Charlie Cunningham himself. I heard he was going to play the outfield for most of the season. Like, I think that's where he's probably going to end up playing the majority of the season this year. But he can also play infield for us. He can play first base. He can play third base, which is actually where he started the, the opener on Friday night. But then he ends up playing uh, first base on on Saturday. Then he plays left field. Actually made a really nice catch in left field on uh, on Sunday. So he can play all over the place. You got Goldstein who's DHing. Logan Jordan can play some catch. You can play some right field. Can also DH. We had three different guys start at second base. Slade Alford started game one. And then we had uh, Paul Totes, who I thought was probably going to open the season there because he's got a bigger bat uh, than, than the other guy, Trey King, who I thought would also be in the mix there as well. Sebastian Murillo who was our starting second baseman last year, guys, Sebastian Murillo, didn't start. Did not start one single game. Like he, He's just not going to. He lost that job because we just brought in better players. So the lineup is still very much in flux, trying to give guys opportunities to see who's going to rise to the top and, and what it's actually going to look like once we get into the meat of our schedule. There are a couple of players I can tell you right now who I feel very confident saying like they're going to, they have a spot. And that's definitely going to be Fernando Gonzalez, a catcher, who has always been a fantastic defensive catcher for us. Now, he has been a liability at the plate, his first couple years here in Athens. Now, I know it's just one series. I know it's one series. Again, don't get too far ahead of yourself. But Fernando also hit 500 this past weekend. He went four of eight, hit two home runs himself. Guys, we were just jacking balls out of the park over the weekend. And that's not really who Fernando Gonzalez has been. And I don't have expectations. That's what he's going to be necessarily moving forward. But if he can just improve to some degree at the plate to go along with his defensive skills, I mean... That's going to be huge for this team. He started two of the three games at catcher, which is pretty much in line with what he's done the past couple of years. So I feel like he's he's going to be our catcher. And then outside of Nando, the only two players that started all three games, every game of that opening series at the same position were shortstop Colby Branch and Dylan Carter in center field. So I think it's probably a safe bet to say right now that Dylan Carter is going to be our center fielder and Colby Branch is going to be our shortstop. Outside of that, the positions are very much in flux. I will say Slate Alford is going to have a starting job. Charlie Conn is going to have a starting job. But there are still some other battles going on in other positions. DH, still a battle. First base, still a battle. Second base, still a battle right now. But at the plate, positionally, it was a fantastic weekend. Honestly, I don't know if it could have gone much better. I mean, we were run-ruling UNC Asheville. But probably the most encouraging thing of the weekend for me on the baseball front was our performance from the mound. You guys know if you listened to our baseball shows last year and if you listen to our preview show, our pitching was a disaster for us last year. That was the problem. Okay, that was the issue, which was kind of the inverse of what it had been for most of Scott Strickland's career in Athens, but that's that was the issue last year. And when we were losing a number of the, the top line guys, Jaden Woods moving on, although he did not have a great year, but he's moving on. Liam Sullivan moving on. It's like, okay, well, we weren't great last year, but I mean, I know we brought in a ton of guys this year, new faces, but are they going to be much better? I don't know. Well, if one weekend is any indication, the answer is an emphatic yes. The staff looked fantastic, guys. Now, we did not 
take any of our starters deep into games. We clearly just wanted to kind of get them out there, get them some reps, and build up to be able to extend them further into the games and extend them to, to deeper inning counts. But they were fantastic. I mean, Charlie Goldstein started Friday night. I think he's, and I said last week, I think he's going to be our, our, our Friday night starter. It looks like that's going to be the case. But uh, he was great, man. Four innings pitched, uh, one earned run, seven strikeouts, two walks. I mean, walks control was our issue all last year, pretty much across the board from a pitching staff standpoint. And Goldstein looked great, man. He looked great. He looked the part. And then we brought in Colton Smith, who I, I also think has a chance to earn a starting job. I don't know if he'll get into the weekend rotation. I think he was in the mix. I could see a, a situation where Colton Smith ends up being our midweek starter, but who knows? We'll, we'll, we'll see how the rest of the season goes, the early part of the schedule. But uh, I think Colton Smith, if, if he's not going to earn that job as as a midweek starter, he is going to be that that guy that's going to be like the long reliever off the bench. If one of our starters is really struggling, you want to bring in a guy that's going to eat up some innings and, and really kind of keep you in the game, well, Colton Smith might be that guy. He gave up one run in three innings work on Friday night, five strikeouts himself. He looked really, really good. Jarvis Evans also looked good. He pitched two innings, a couple strikeouts himself on Friday night. So they looked really good. Friday night was fantastic. Then we bounced back on Saturday. We gave a few more runs on Saturday. We ended up giving up five runs. But I thought the guys that we are going to rely on this season actually pitched well on Saturday. So if you look at Christian Rackna is a guy that started for us. He's one of the transfers that we got coming in. He came in from... Uh, George Mason, actually, which you don't think it was a baseball school. They were actually pretty good last year. But he wasn't even a starter for George Mason. He was a guy that came out of the pen for them. But if you listen to Wes Johnson leading up to the start of the season, he was very high on Rackham. And I got the feeling that he was going to get a shot to start one of these games to open the season. And sure enough, yeah, game two, Saturday, he got his opportunity and he pitched really well. I mean, he, he again, four innings. Looks like, it looks like we just won the guys who about four innings. That was it. But four innings, did, did give up one run, walked a couple of batters, three batters. That is a little too much for my liking. I kind of flashbacks to last year. But four, four strikeouts, I thought he looked good. Then we brought in another transfer, this guy from Penn by the name of Brian Zeldin. He's another guy that I heard Wes Johnson kind of talk up in the preseason, so I had some expectations to see what this guy was going to be able to do. He pitched a really strong inning of work on Saturday. So, so I think the guys that we're going to rely on this season that pitched Saturday, I thought they actually pitched pretty well. And then Sunday, it was Leighton Finley. He's the other guy I thought was going to get a start to open the, the season in one of these first three games. And sure enough, yes, he did. And Finley was a guy that worked out of the pin for us last year. I think he got one start maybe late last year. But he's a big dude, and I really liked his stuff last year, just command. He had to work on command. He had to add to his pitching repertoire. And Wes Johnson, guys, I think, I mean, obviously he's a longtime pitch, pitching coach, and him coming over – I know it's just one series. And again, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. But it's just it was so night and day from what we saw last year from a pitching standpoint and what we saw through that first weekend. I mean, the control was there. Guys looked like they had sharpened their skill sets. They added more pitches. They got more, they were more confident with, with more pitches. I think we brought in some some difference makers for us. The guys are gonna be big time players for us that are that we're gonna lean on this season. And we didn't really have guys like that last year. But Finley, I thought, man, like again, last year. Thought he had some really good stuff. He just had to sharpen his game, and he looked great on Sunday. Also went four innings, gave up one hit, five strikeouts, no walks. Beautiful. No walks at all on Sunday. So Finley went four, and then another transfer he brought in, Josh Roberge, I think is how you pronounce his name. This is the guy that we brought in from Southern New Hampshire. Another name that I heard Wes Johnson actually mention very favorably in the preseason and uh he went three innings and then it was you know we run ruled him we beat the crap out of him so he pitched great three strikeouts himself no walks on the day for either of those guys so from a pitching standpoint I mean we could not have asked for a better start again still a very long way to go but I am very very encouraged by what I saw I'm very very excited I think this has the makings the potential to be a postseason team I'm not ready yet to say that we're going to host a regional. I need to see more against better competition. But I do think I've seen enough to say that I, I have the expectation this team's going to make the postseason. And that's fun, guys. That's just fun. And we're going to have you covered all baseball season long, guys. We've done that with basketball. I know things have kind of peered out in the basketball end. But, hey, we still love Georgia basketball. We're still going to get there. Not there yet. We're going to get there. We're on our way. Just... Give us some time. But we're going to cover Georgia baseball, too, for you guys. We covered it as much as we could last year. You know, we always tell you guys, this is a show of the people, for people, by the people, right? And we want to produce content that you guys are into. And we weren't great last year on the baseball front. I love Georgia baseball, so I covered it when I could. But there wasn't as much of demand for it. So if you guys are into it, you just got to let me know. Let me know by listening, number one. And then number two, just 
hit me up. Let us know on social media. Email us. Let me know because I want to produce content that you want. I've always felt like some of these sports, these, I don't want to say secondary sports, but these sports that maybe aren't as mainstream as college football and college basketball, I've always felt like there's a market for because I'm a fan of all of these teams and I go to a lot of their games and their matches, most of them, in fact. And it's always been a source of frustration for me that there's just not much coverage of them. You can't find information really anywhere. So I've always felt, hey, that frustrates me. So I know there's other people out there like me. So I have this podcast so I can help fill that void. I can help people out, but I don't want to produce content that you don't want. But if you want it, let me know and we'll cover it. But we're going to be covering some baseball because I, I know when we're good, people care. And I think we're going to be pretty freaking good this year. So great, great opening weekend on the diamond for the diamond dogs, but not to be outdone. Oh my God. The Georgia softball lady dogs. Let's freaking go. I will be the first to admit that we do not talk a lot of Georgia softball here. I love Georgia softball. I love all Georgia sports. I don't go to as many Georgia softball games as I do other sports. I will readily admit that. I might go out to a couple more this this year, but I do watch. I, I, when they're on TV, I watch, and I keep track of what they're doing. And I want to give them some props. I know softball doesn't really move the needle for a lot of people, but you know what? I don't freaking care. I'm excited about this team. They had a hell of a weekend. So if you don't follow a ton of college softball, which is fine. I, under, I understand if you don't. But if you don't watch college softball, beginning of every year, they have this tournament in Clearwater, Florida. And it's, it's an invitational thing. Usually you have the best teams in the country. They're invited down there. And we don't usually get invited to a tournament like that. But we did get invited to that tournament this year. And your number four Georgia Bulldogs had an incredible weekend down there in Clearwater. Now, the first game was a little touch and go. We had, a, had to mount a comeback against Wisconsin. That's a team that we're better than. But we beat them in extra innings, 7, 6, and 10. But then we came back and we beat a top 10 Oklahoma State team, 7-4. We beat a top 20 UCLA team, 7-2. And then we beat a top 5 Florida State team, 20-10. to We run-ruled them. We are now a sparkling 9-0 on the season and I'm telling you guys, I put this tweet out there. Like, I'm about to have to make reservations in both Omaha and Oklahoma City because both these teams early in the season, Georgia baseball and Georgia softball, look legit. It's tough to predict the future, but I've watched a lot of Georgia baseball and I've watched a fair amount of Georgia softball. And these teams look a little different to me early. I know, I know, but they look a little different to me, guys. And I think both teams have a chance to make some real noise, not just in the regular season, but once we have the postseason as well down the road. So great stuff all around. Georgia women's tennis team also took down Tech on the road 4-1, which is what we always do. Tech sucks. We've got another national title contender on our hands with the Georgia women's tennis team. Basketball, what is there to say right now that we haven't already said? Same story, different day, right? Build a, a first half lead against a team that's more talented than us. Could have given us a quad one win. And we promptly allow that lead to evaporate in the second half. And we end up losing, not necessarily convincingly, but losing. And for the same reasons, we simply cannot crowd defensive rebounds, give our opponents far too many second half, second chance points, and we have just forgotten how to defend. And it's it's baffling to me, guys. The defensive letdowns, I just I can't make sense of it. These are things that we were not doing early in the year. We've had trouble defending ball screens. Really good. Like I really started to notice it the first time we played Florida, actually. And it's just been some of the teams have exploited game in and game out since that point over the past couple of weeks. And we just not figured it out. But now it's it's almost getting worse, which is hard to explain. I, I can't explain. I mean, we're talking about just simple pick and pop stuff, guys. Like we we are not communicating the way that we were early in the year. We were really connected defensively. And I've said it many times over the course of the basketball season, our defense is what was giving us chances to win games early in the year while our offense was coming along. Now our defense has completely fallen apart and we're trying different things, guys. Like we went to a one, three, one last week and that didn't really work well. We're trying different lineups, but we just have we have some issues, guys. We have some issues from a roster standpoint, but beyond just that, I mean, it's not even just like the physical side of things. Like, yeah, we have some physical deficiencies from a defense standpoint. Justin Hill struggles to defend. That's clear. She was just not athletic enough as a big man there. He just doesn't jump. He can't block. He, has, he gives us no rim protection whatsoever. 
Then you could bring in a guy like Frank Anselm, who I still think needs to play more minutes, but he gets pushed around because he's so thin. You got Jalen Deloach, I think he's really active, but he's undersized as a five. It's hard to play him at the four because he doesn't really give you much of an offensive game. When you can play guys like RJ Melendez and Dylan James, who certainly give you more offensively than Deloach does. So we just have some deficiencies from a roster standpoint. That's clear. That's certainly a big part of it. But it almost seems like our guys just, I don't want to say have given up. They're still playing hard. But they're just not thinking defensively. It's almost like it's gotten into their heads. Like, we're just leaving guys wide open, especially on Saturday against Florida. Like, I have not really seen that all year. Like, yeah, they've teams have gotten switches on Chiwa and our bigs, and they've been able to exploit that. But that's not leaving guys wide open. That's just a mismatch. We were leaving multiple shooters wide the hell open on Saturday. Now, early in the game, they did not hit those in the first half. I'm saying, I'm like, I'm like, oh my God. Oh, okay. They missed it. Thank God. Thank God. But they started to hit those shots in the second half and we were leaving them wide open. And yeah, that becomes uh, problematic, we shall say. And then offensively, we just don't have a consistent threat. It's different guys on different nights. Sometimes it might be Justin Hill. It might be Silas Dimery. It might be Blue Kane. It might be RJ Melendez who goes off for 35 points. It might be Noah Thomas. And Noah Thomason's our most consistent threat, but he's still not consistently a, a dominant scorer. Uh, sometimes it might be Jabri Abdurrahim, although he has certainly been in a slump of over the past couple of weeks for sure, no doubt about it. But we just don't have that guy that we can count on every single game to show up and give us consistent offense. And that's an issue. We just don't have that guy to lean on. We don't have anyone that we can count on game in and game out to be that guy to get us a bucket when we need to stop the bleeding. So yeah, it's clear at this point, obviously, we are not going to the NCAA tournament. Now I'm just hoping that we can find a way to get in an NIT bid. I just want to win some games, guys. I want to build momentum for next year. Let's get into the postseason of some sort. The NIT would be a, a step forward for this program. It would be. It's not where we want to be, but it would be. And see if we can build off of that. But I just want to see us win games again, guys. I mean, it's... It's tough, man. Six in a row now. That's tough. It's tough. But uh, yeah, anyway. All right, guys. That's all I got for today. I got to get out of here. So it's 930 now. I actually had to eat some dinner. I haven't really eaten all day. But I want to get on here and give you guys some content, given the fact that it was a day late. I apologize for that. So thank you for your patience. Appreciate you. I will be back more later this week, guys. And hey, look, we're actually going to do some hardcore Georgia football talk. Let's go. We are about to get to spring practice, y'all. So I think next week we're going to start rolling out our spring practice primers. And I cannot freaking wait for that, guys. I'm pumped. I'm so excited. Let's go. But, yeah, let's have a great week, guys. I'll be back later this week with some more Georgia football talk for you guys. And also, who knows, maybe, just possibly, the Glory UGA YouTube channel might start back up. Just putting it out there. Just putting it out there. But, all right, guys, have a good one. I'm Tyler. And as always... Go dogs!